Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it's my pleasure to be able to welcome all of you, whether you are here in our sanctuary in person or if you're watching on the live stream, we welcome you. We're thrilled you've chosen to worship with us. It is our hope and our prayer that this is a rich time of celebrating and exalting the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are in person and a first-time with, visitor with us this morning, we're thrilled you've chosen to worship with us. We hope that when you came in, somebody took you over to our visitor, kind of our welcome center. You see that? It's got a sign and everything. Welcome center. Let's you know. That's where you go. And you pick up a goodie bag. The goodie bag has all sorts of fun things in it, things for you all to enjoy, things to allow you to get to know us a little bit who we are, what we aspire to be. One of the things we aspire to be is a church that's very warm, very hospitable, and very friendly. And one of the ways we do that is we let each other know that we're here. And a very, I hope, very non-threatening way of doing that is at the end of your rows, you will find friendship hats. And so if you're at the end, pretend you're on the air, airline now, you're on the airplane, and I'm the Southwest, you know, whatever they call them. And I'm kind of doing this. I'm saying, if you're sitting at an exit aisle, if you are at the end of the aisle, this is your... If you don't want that responsibility, time to go in the middle now and switch with somebody. But what we would like is for you to get the friendship pad started, pass it down to your friend, sign in, and let us know that you're here. Non-threatening, very easy in the sense of that. This morning we come to the Lord's Supper, and so hopefully our hearts are prepared, as not only do we hear of God's grace through his word, we feed on God's grace through the table. What a wonderful opportunity it is to celebrate and have and grow in the means of grace. I want to say thank you to Charlie and Carol Walker for the flowers in memory of September 11th. They look wonderful, and so we're grateful for that, and we remember uh, that particular day as well in our history. Different things, if you pull out your bulletins, I'm not going to be able to read every announcement, but just a couple I want to highlight, you see a new Sheds of Hope bill that's scheduled for the 19th to the 21st of September. Please see Dick Forrester if you have any questions regarding that. Also on Friday evening, September 30th, we have a very special missionary opportunity. And that is from the mission Here's Life Africa, the Bishop Dr. Stanley Hote, who is the director. What they do is they go throughout Africa, and I'm telling you, the winds of the Holy Spirit are blowing there. I mean, people are coming to Christ. If you don't think God is active in our world, wait till you hear this man speak and wait till you hear what he has to say. I would encourage you to come and be a part of that. It'll be from 7 to 8. We'll have brief refreshments afterwards. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Also, a reminder that Marianne Johnson put together a wonderful LOPC history book documenting God's faithfulness to us in the past. There is still a sign-up sheet out in the narthex if you're interested in purchasing one of those books. ESL registration is this afternoon. I think Russell has it very well organized. Uh, see, he's looking at me like, are you sure, Jeff? I'm positive, Russell. I, I absolutely count on you and trust you with that. But uh, I think 4 o'clock, do I have that right? Do we still need more hands? Do we need more? If you are led to come out, see Russell, we can put you to work in terms of that, so that's going on. There are several other announcements of things going on in the life of the church. 
I would encourage you, bring your bulletins home, read them over carefully. I would love it if you didn't do it during the sermon. That's a small thing, but you know. I can dream, a guy can dream big, right? But you have them there prepared for you. And so now we are blessed to have Mary Strickland lead us in the prelude. Let's use this as an opportunity to prepare our hearts for worship. point of the Christian's journey and week is the time where we get to gather for worship. Think for a second that God has initiated and called us into his very presence to worship him. And think about how you come into worship, where we come into worship. Some of us may have had great weeks. We're feeling on top of the world. We're going to hear the call to worship in a second. We're going to hear clap your hands, all you people, and you're going to go, yes. Other of us are going to hear that, and we're going to go, 
I'm really not there. I'm not feeling it. Let me encourage you. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. God is pleased you are here in his presence. He has called us into his very presence that he can minister to you wherever you are. Psalm 47 does say, clap your hands, all peoples. There's joy to worship. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Father, we come into your presence to exalt you and to worship you. We praise you that you are here. We open our hearts to you and we come as we are. We come vulnerable and raw. We come open and we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our lives. So Lord, be glorified. May we aim to love and glorify you and we pray for your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing our opening hymn of praise. this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And a brief word about this particular chapter, we often hear of it as the love chapter, because that's the theme of it. It's often read at weddings. It's a very beautiful piece of literature. It's a very beautiful piece of God's word. And I think oftentimes it is very misunderstood. Because while we're looking for the loftiness of it, here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. You're immature, grow up. And he's basically saying, this is how you're supposed to live, and you all are a mess. Maybe it's one of the reasons I love Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I'm going, I feel right at home. I'm kind of along the lines of, I'm a mess, I need the grace of God but it's also telling us about the primacy of love. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith 
so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, do we hear what he's getting at and what he's saying there? He's saying you can actually be the greatest evangelist, the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, the greatest speaker. You can know all mysteries. You can be the greatest scholar. You can be smart. You can be super generous. You can have a faith that moves mountains. You give your body to be burned. But if you don't love, you are nothing. What is it that we seek? What is it that we aspire to? I find this extremely convicting and challenging, as also it, it just kind of defines what we are to be about. So I invite you, take a few moments, come clean. Look at your relationships. Look at your style of relating. Not just your intentions, but how you come across. Are you sensitive to criticism? Are you defensive? How do you come across to others? Take your sins, take your heart, take yourself to the God of all grace who forgives us. And in a few moments, we will pray together our corporate confession of sin. Let's pray. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from death to life and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the ways of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin that we may be your faithful people obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is head of the church, his body. In his name we pray. Amen. Our assurance of pardon comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I wonder if we really understand what those words mean. That through the death of Jesus Christ, his body of flesh on the cross, so that through the cross we appear before God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as already 
holy, as already blameless, and as already above reproach. That means without guilt, without shame. That's who we are in God's sight. And it's out of that that we respond by laying our lives down as living sacrifices. We don't do that in order to become holy. We do that because we are holy and blameless and above reproach. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, receiving that gift, that's who you are before him. Friends, receive that assurance of pardon. And let's respond by praising God. Let's stand together.
I love the line in that particular song that says, your heart is kind. Have that picture before you, that truth before you, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes I feel like we think our prayers have to be kind of eloquent or certain things. Do we realize what it means that Jesus intercedes for us? He takes our prayers with his merits, with what he has done. It doesn't matter if we fumble along. Maybe I'll fumble along on purpose just to encourage you as we go through this. He wants our hearts, and he draws us to himself because his heart is kind towards you. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer in unison, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, thank you that you are our Father, that your heart is kind towards us, that you're a shepherd, that everything you do, though we don't understand it all, your ways are beyond us, your thoughts are not our thoughts, but you are our Father who does everything for your glory and our good. Help us to rest in that. And even when we don't understand, to hallow your name by surrendering to you and surrendering to your sovereign will in our lives. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come on earth and your will to be done on earth right here because your will is what leads to human flourishing. It's what leads to what's best for us. So we ask, Father, that you would forgive us our debts that you would give us this day daily bread, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational needs to nurture us, to nourish us. Help us to be a forgiving people, offering and giving grace to others in our relationships. Keep us from resentment. Keep us from bitterness. May no bitter root grow up into us. We pray for our body and we pray for those who are hurting. We continue to pray for Doug and Jean Hesse, and we continue to pray for Susan and Tom Porter. We continue to pray for Bill Bonner and his recovery. And we pray for many, many other needs that go unspoken, people who are facing family difficulties, loss, uncertainty. Lord, you know their hearts, and your heart is kind. And so we pray that you would come to them in comfort, in goodness, in love. Lord, we pray for the ministries of the church. And we ask, Father, that whatever we do in word and deed, we do it to your glory. Teach us to love you above all else and above all others. Lord, we ask all of this because we know that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we pray to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
How many people were in the choir this morning? Praise God. I think I, there were still more. Amy, are there more chairs? We could add chairs, couldn't we? 
It is not too late. We could burst at the seams. What a good problem to have. Wouldn't you like to have that problem? That's not a bad one. Well, how does the old saying go? If at first you don't succeed, come on, you can say it with me. What's next? Try, try again. You know, I think we got that saying from God. Because guess what he did with Jonah? Where did we leave our favorite bumbling prophet? He heard the commission from God. Take the word of the Lord, call, go to the great city, the capital city of Nineveh, preach against it, call out against it. What does Jonah do? I think I'll go the other direction. We kind of know the story by now. He ends up, there's a storm at sea. He ends up getting thrown into the sea so that the sailors on the ship can live. God provides him a fish, which instead of him dying by the fish, it saved him from drowning. It became, the, for him, the source of salvation. It came, became, for him, the source where he went from death to life. The climax of the first act of our story, Jonah chapters 1 and 2, is Jonah's deliverance by God through the instrument of the great fish. And the fish, which could have meant Jonah's death, is actually used by God to save Jonah from death by drowning. And now this brings us to Jonah chapter 3, where Jonah is going to be recommissioned to take the gospel once again to Nineveh. So again, if at first you don't succeed, let's commission. One of the things I do learn from this, God's a relentless God. When he tells you to do something, he's not giving up. Let's look at our text, short text, short reading, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Would you pray with me? As we open your word this morning, Lord, we do pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. Jesus himself said, apart from him, we can do nothing. So Jesus, apart from you, I can't preach this word, and we can't hear this word. So we need you. Illumine our hearts, open our eyes and our ears. Give us ears to hear and how to apply it to our lives. What difference it is to make in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why didn't God just let the fish eat Jonah? You know, he wasn't exactly a willing servant, was he? Why do you think God didn't just let the fish eat him? Why did God have the fish vomit Jonah onto the shore? Why was Jonah saved? Why was he delivered? He was saved to be sent. God opened my eyes to his love and his grace in the spring of 1980 on the battlefield of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania through Young Life where I surrendered my life to Christ. Now, I was 18 years old. I knew nothing. I didn't, wasn't raised. In, we believed in God at home, but I wasn't raised in a church-going home. So I was hard. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm polished at the age of 60. At the age of 18, I wasn't even close to being polished. 
I knew nothing of the implications of what it meant to follow Christ. As a matter of fact, I knew that, okay, I'm a Christian now, I'm supposed to read the Bible. What I did the day after I became a Christian is I cut school. Kids, don't do this. Don't follow my example. But I cut school to go out and buy a Bible. I'm not sure that the ends justify the means there at all, but I'm just saying I had no idea what the implications were of being a follower of Jesus. Here's one thing I did know. I once was lost and now was found, was blind, but now I see. And I also knew that I wanted others who were lost to be found by Christ. And the person who was closest to me that I wanted to come to know Christ was my dad. So I badgered him and badgered him and badgered him. And then when he got tired, because I didn't get tired, I badgered him before. He eventually came to know Christ. His life was truly drastically changed. And years later, he gave his testimony. And I won't say it word for word. It wouldn't be appropriate here. My dad was from New York City. Didn't always speak in the most appropriate language. But years later, he's up giving his testimony. And he says, that little pain, I'll stop there, would not let me alone. Guess who the little pain was? Here's all I knew. I knew that I was saved to be sent. We are saved to be sent. I want you to think about this. God is, by nature, a sending God. Look at some of our favorite verses. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, the reason that we are Christians in the first place is God took the initiative of sending Jesus for you and I. Love compelled him to send Jesus. And love compels Jesus to send us. At the end of John's gospel, I just quoted from John 3, the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The church exists to be sent to its community. That's why we're here. Jonah was saved to be sent. And one of the things I think that can give us great encouragement when we look at Jonah, and especially as we look at the last half of the book. See, the last half of the book of Jonah divides really simply. Jonah recommissions, is recommissioned to go to Nineveh. He goes. The Ninevites respond to the message there's a revival, kind of an awakening, awakening in Nineveh. Jonah's angry at that. He gives an angry response to God's grace, followed by God's response, concluding the book. See, Jonah is not too happy about the awakening, and God responds to Jonah. So one of the things we learned is, even if we're not the best evangelists, even if we're intimidated by this, even if we're, God uses us because it's God's mission to bring redemption to the world around us. The only reason Jesus hasn't returned yet and brought us to his new world is there, there are more men and women and boys and girls yet to come to Je the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why would God allow all the suffering, the injustice that we see? It would be cruel to allow it if he didn't have more that he was bringing from hell to heaven, from death to life. 
He has a mission and he has a church for his mission. Even if we're not the most willing church. Even if we're not welcome to the life of Jonah. But Jonah still went. So friends, take heart, take encouragement. Even if you don't fully get grace. You don't have to have arrived for God to use you. You don't have to be perfect. There are no perfect Christians. But Jonah learned this lesson. You can't live, give love and grace until you receive love and grace. And even if Jonah fully didn't understand it, he still did receive love and grace. And God used him. We only love to the degree that we feel loved. What do we learn about Jonah's restoration? Jonah's restoration led to three things. Jonah's restoration led to a new beginning. Jonah's restoration was marked by a new purpose. And Jonah's restoration demanded a new obedience, even if that obedience was not perfect. He still went. He was still willing. Okay, look with me at verse 1. Jonah's restoration led to a new beginning, and this new beginning is marked with the words, he says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, I'll be brief on this point, but I want us to notice again, as we did in the beginning of this book, how do we receive our instructions? How do we receive the commands of God? It is through the word of God. The word of God came to Jonah. There is no knowledge of God apart from his word. We don't base our knowledge of God on our opinions. We don't base our knowledge of God on the opinions or thoughts of others. We don't base our knowledge of God on our feelings or anything else. For the church to be healthy, for the church to be alive, for the church to be vibrant, it must be a word-grounded and a word-centered church. You don't receive your instructions because Jeff Birch gave them to you. You receive your instructions because we find them in the Word. If I don't verify it and demonstrate it from the Word, say, Jeff, show me where it says it in the Word. I can easily be wrong, but we're going to look to the Word because that's how instructions come to us. Now, what does the Word of God do in our lives? The writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews tells us, for the Word of God is living and active. Stop right there. Even all I've read so far is Jonah 3, verse 1. But the Word of God is doing something in you right now because it's alive. It's living and active. You might be on the edge of your seat going, yes, you might be going, wait a second, this is making me feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure about this. But the Word of God is living and active. It's doing something. It may be drawing you. It may be repelling you. Both possibilities are real. The Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. No wonder going to church can be hard. It's dangerous to come to church because you're going to be confronted by the Word of God. God is doing something with you and in you when you hear the Word of God. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. At the very least, that means it has the power to change and influence us. And that power is inherent in itself. The Word of God works by its own strength. It's not dependent on our response to it. God's Word is living, creates life, and creates relationships. 
God created the world through his word. Think about it. He said, let there be light. He spoke, and it was performed. He spoke, and light occurred. He spoke, and it brought reality into existence. He spoke creation into existence. The Gospel writer John tells us that Jesus is the Word who became flesh. Truth is incarnational and relational, and that's what gives and builds life and is truth that is both living and active. You realize relationships are created through words, built through words, created through language. So even when we are reluctant to listen to God's Word, even when we're resistant to it, perhaps even when we're downright disobedient to it, as Jonah was, it is still working in your life. God's Word is shaping you. It could be making you softer and more godly. It can be making you harder and harder to reach. But God's Word is shaping you. See, this is what was going on in Jonah's life. We saw at the beginning of the book of Jonah, that Jonah was not really equipped to be the evangelist to the Ninevites. He didn't even go to the city. How's that for not being equipped? He went the other direction. And he also lacked something else. He really didn't know God's heart. I said from the beginning that the theme of the book of Jonah is God's boundless compassion. And we're going to see, this is why Jonah, yes, he was obedient, yes, he went, Yes, he was graced in that way. He received grace, but he still had a long way to go. He needed to learn more and more of the boundless compassion of God. He needed to learn more and more of the heart of God. And friends, there's application there for us. Because do you know what we need more than anything else to learn as we go to the Word, as we come to worship, as we hang out, as we walk through life? We need to learn and get to know the heart of God. Our views of God are distorted. We see God through our past circumstances, or we see God through our present circumstances, or we see God through past relationships. We need to see God as he has revealed himself and told us in his word. We need to have our distortions stripped away so we get to know the heart of God. We need, just like Jonah, a new beginning through the life-giving, life-changing Word of God. A pastor tells the following story. I wish it was mine, but it's not. But I can give credit where credit's due. A pastor tells the story of a wedding he once conducted. And he says, it goes like this. He says, several years ago, I conducted a wedding ceremony on a Saturday afternoon in June. He said, the bride wore a white summer dress, the groom a white linen shirt, they insisted on the simplest ceremony possible. It was held in a park in a grove of trees. Their family and friends stood in a circle, the three of us in the middle. I began with a welcome. They exchanged vows. They exchanged rings. I pronounced to them husband and wife. They kissed. Everybody clapped. The whole ceremony lasted seven minutes. They were then each handed a cluster of helium balloons on strings. The balloons, this pastor explained to everyone, were symbols of their past, their past marriages, pregnancies they had chosen to terminate, people they had had affairs with when they were previously married, 
relationships that had not lasted. As a picture of starting over together, as a picture of their new beginning, they wanted their first act as a married couple to be letting the balloons go. They walked out of the grove of trees into an adjoining field, just the two of them holding hands, standing in knee-high grass, exchanging words that only they could hear. Then they raised the balloons above their heads and let them go. We all stood there, watching those balloons float away until they dripped from sight. This pastor writing about this incident said this is, was one of the most moving moments of his entire life. He says it showed us the heart of God. It showed us the heart of God that we worship. Loving, compassion, forgiving, kindness, redeeming, restoring. This is Jonah's God. This is our God. This is the God we need to learn. This is the God of grace. Jonah's restoration was marked by a new beginning. Jonah's restoration was marked by a new purpose. Take a look at verse 2. God says to Jonah, arise. You ever notice that sometimes the most, how do I say this, the deepest application is also the simplest application? Get up! Sometimes what we have to do is turn the TV off, get up, and talk to somebody. Have a conversation, write an email, send a text message, do something to talk to somebody. Arise, God says to Jonah, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now see, we've seen how God has dealt with Jonah, and especially with Jonah's disobedience, how he dealt with him as a loving father, firm and yet gentle, firm but loving, gave Jonah a taste of judgment to intercept his self-destructive behavior, but redeemed him showed him grace at the same time. We are saved to be sent. Jonah's restoration is marked by a new purpose. Now, if we look at this, we'll see that there's a slight difference. Remember I said Jonah chapter 3 starts the second act of the book of Jonah. And if we look, there's a little bit of a difference between how Jonah was given his commission in chapter 1 and how he's given his commission here in chapter 3. In chapter 1, it says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God says, Get up, go to Nineveh, call out against it, and he gives him a reason. He's actually kind of talking to him like a mature son. Son, I want you to go to Nineveh. Here's why I want you to go to Nineveh. They're pretty wicked people over there. They need to hear grace. There's a lot of emptiness in their lives. Their evils come up before me. So he's reasoning with them. He gives them that. Jonah, of course, does what? He disobeys. So now it's interesting. Here we get to chapter 3, and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. No more am I going to reason with you and give you the reason. Now I'm saying do it. Why? We all know this as parents. What does it say? Because I said so. I swore when I was raising Joel I would never say those words. Ask Evie, it didn't last long. Because I said so became some of my favorite words. We learn those words quickly. 
I'm one who always, I talked about my dad earlier in the service, I always wanted my dad to reason with me. I hated because I said so. I was like, I got to know what. You all have gotten to know me pretty well by now. Can you imagine me taking me? I want to know why. Why? I drive teachers crazy when I was in class. I took a class with Brian Chapel this week. I probably drove him crazy because he would go, what are you thinking? What are you pro I got a thought. I'm processing. Call on me, Brian. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Chapter 3, God doesn't tell Jonah what he's thinking. Arise, get up, go, and preach the message I give you. Jonah had the chance of being treated like he was mature. Now we're going to treat him like he is, the immature kid he is. Proclaim the message he will give him. And notice what the message contains. Basically only has two parts to it. It's really simple. The first part is go. Go means simply, not simply to your own kind. For Jonah, it was to go to the great city of Nineveh, a very important city to God. It was an urban center with a population of about 120,000. He says, go. We need to recognize, and I included, this will tell you how much of an important quote I think this is. It's in your reflection. In other words, I want you to bring it home. I want you to put it up on your refrigerator. I want you to learn it. I'll be relentless enough. I want you to memorize it. One of my seminary pre professors was a man by the name of Harvey Kahn. And he says this. He says, one cannot be a missionary church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church on the church's terms. It must become a grow, a go, a structure. The church must recapture its identity as the only organization in the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. Do you hear that? That means if I'm to be biblical, as your pastor, you may come to me with all of your preferences, and they may be wonderful preferences. I like this. I don't like this. This is our tradition. We've always done it this way before. And they may be wonderful, wonderful things. But I'm going to ask the question, how does it help us reach Lake Oconee? Because we as an organization, we as a church, Harvey Kahn was right. We are the only organization that exists for the sake of its non-members. We can do everything else for our preferences, and they may be wonderful things, but they miss our purpose. They miss our reason for being. They miss our calling from God, and they miss the heart of God. Jonah didn't understand it. He didn't do it perfectly. I'm never going to call us to have our act together fully. I am going to call us to discover and learn the heart of God and be in line with the heart of God. Jonah's restoration was not only for a new beginning, it was for a new purpose. And lastly, it demands a new obedience. We don't ask ourselves, do we have our act together? We don't ask ourselves, are we, are we, have we arrived? We do have to ask, are we willing? We're going to learn as we finish out and go through the rest of Jonah chapters 3 and 4. Jonah didn't fully get it. There was a lot still wrong with his heart. But let's give Jonah credit. He was willing. He did go. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. He was not perfect. He was not sinless. There was much remaining sin in Jonah that still needed to be put to death. 
But what had changed Jonah? What had made a difference? We've seen in Jonah 2 the path that God takes Jonah through. It was the path of being taken out of the pit, out of the miry mud and clay. It was the path from death to resurrection. It was out of Jonah's death that life was born in Nineveh. And friends, this is the sign of Jonah spoken of by Jesus in the Gospels. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. It is out of Christ's death that men and women and boys and girls receive life. It is only out of brokenness that power is born. It is only out of weakness that strength is manifested. God said to Jonah, go. God said to Jesus, go. See, are you willing and prepared to go, to sacrifice, to die to your traditions, to die to your preferences, to die to your comfort for the sake of others? How do we become willing? How do we obey this? Only to the degree that grace has impacted you. It is only as you see that Jesus obeyed the call to go, and to go specifically for you, that he went three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the belly of the earth, for you. It's only to the degree that that message, that he was weak, that he was broken, that he did that for you. And it's only to the degree that that message, it's only to the degree that you've been graced, that you will be willing and able to offer grace to others. It is only as you see Jesus going for you that you're willing to go for others. See, what is it going to take for us to go? And for us to be a go church. To not, it's one thing, and I guess it's not bad in and of itself to open the doors and say everybody is welcome. But that's not what God is calling us to. God is calling us to be a go structure where we go to others like Jesus went for us. And we ask people, we invite people, we enter their lives, we sacrifice for them. We don't ask them to come to us on our terms. We go and meet them where they are. And what is it going to take for us to do that? We have to be gripped by the love and mercy and grace of God. Where we say, like Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us. If you are hearing this, as a do-better, try-harder message, oh, then please let me start over, because that's not the message. The message is, oh, that I wish you would see Jesus' heart for you, that Jesus went to the belly of the earth for you, to redeem you, to restore you, to save you. He was willing to go to those depths for your sake. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians when we're given the message of reconciliation, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. My prayer is that our hearts are gripped by the grace 
of God. See, there's no shortcut. What is it going to take to have our hearts freed in order to love others? What is it going to take to have our hearts freed in order to love our community? It's going to take a greater love. It is always all about love. Paul was right in 1 Corinthians 13. We can do everything right, and if we don't have love, we're nothing. We must love Christ more than we love sin, more than we love our own comfort, more than we love our preferences, and that will only happen. How do we have a greater love for Christ? We love only because He first loved us. It is only to the degree that you see Him first loving you that we are willing to step out, to go, to enter into others' lives, to sacrifice our comfort, our reputation, what others think of us. It is always a love issue. We love because He first loved us. Father, show us Your love. The issue for us is always about knowing Your love. And I pray that we would know Your love more and more. We're like Jonah. We've been graced. We need to know more grace. Our hearts don't fully understand grace. And so we cry out to you, Holy Spirit, show us the love and grace and the mercy and kindness of Christ. And even now as we come to the table, we pray that you would show us the love and feed us with the love and grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. As we come to the table and I invite the elders to come forward, let us stand and sing the first three verses of Amazing Grace. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this sacrament, this table is instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is his table. It doesn't belong to the session, myself, the elders, the church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the host. He's the object of our worship. He's the one inviting us to his table. He's the one offering us his grace. These elements, ordinary elements, ordinary bread, ordinary grape juice, are signs and seals of what Jesus has done for us. Of how we could never get to God. We could never get God on our own. So Jesus came down. He came down to reconcile us to God. And friends, if you're a baptized believer, just a part of an evangelical church, you are invited to come. If you are trusting Christ, you're not trusting yourself, you're not trusting your own good life, your own moral life, you are trusting in Christ for your salvation. You're invited to come to this table. Maybe you're sitting there and you've never trusted Christ before. It is not a difficult thing. It could be as simple as praying a prayer right now saying, Father, accept me and receive me because of what Jesus has done. And you are in the family of God and the angels in heaven are throwing the wildest party you've ever seen. And now might be the day of salvation for you. And so I invite you, and if that's the case, come. Begin to have your heart renewed. Begin to have your heart strengthened. This is a covenant renewal where God has given us, this is a means not to grace, but a means of grace. This is a means by which my prayer is you are hearing and you are seeing and you are feeling Jesus say to your soul, I love you. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a means of tasting that love. This is a means of that love becoming more and more real to you, which is the greatest thing we know. We need from, for it to go from our head to our heart, for it to go from an abstract, theoretical, intellectual concept to grabbing hold of us and compelling our lives. It is only if you are not yet sure about receiving Christ, not yet ready to do that, that's okay. If that's the case, we invite you to keep coming Ask Jesus to make himself known to you. Ask him to make himself real to you. I believe he's faithful and he will. But we'd ask you to let the elements pass by in that case. But my friends, know that this is God's hospitality. This is Jesus opening his heart to you, saying, do you feel weak? Taste, taste of me. Do you need help? I'm here for you. God is our refuge and our strength. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would set apart these ordinary elements for their extraordinary use. I think of what it means to be hungry. It leads to weakness. We feel like we're, gonna, we're disoriented. We're going to fall over. We need strength. We need help. Your grace is what we need. Minister to our hearts. Thank you for this sacrament. We pray 
Jesus, that you would be moving in our midst by your spirit to make yourself real to us through this means of grace, this means of hearing you say, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Your word tells us that once we were alienated in the hostility of our minds, doing evil deeds, rejecting you, living as if we didn't need you. But Jesus, you, by your body of flesh on the cross, have reconciled us to God and presented us before you holy, blameless, and above reproach. How amazing is that? How amazing is that grace? Lord, I pray that there is not a person in this room right now who has not tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite us to stand to sing the final verses of Amazing Grace. And after that, I'm going to give the benediction. And I want to invite you, Mary Strickland is going to lead us in the postlude. And so, please, don't rush out. Listen to Mary play that. That'd be a wonderful thing. Let's stand. How amazing is grace to you? Let's hear you sing. benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.